Well, it's good to be here. Um, it has been a little while uh, since I've seen you, and we do miss you. Um, uh, and we look forward to joining you as a whole family again soon. But I'm happy to be here this morning um, sharing with you uh, God's Word. I think I want to start this morning by sharing a little bit of an internal struggle I have, even approaching the topic that we've been covering through this series, Misquoted. You see, the premise we're standing on here today is, how can we think more rightly about the scriptures? But unless we're careful, our noble pursuit of thinking and even living rightly can ensnare us in the pride of self-righteousness. Jesus warned us to watch out for the sin of the Pharisees, which I believe was and is the pride and arrogance that manifests itself when we become overly enamored with our right thinking. And we stand in church with our face to heaven and say, thank God I'm not like those other losers who don't understand scripture like I do. Rather, Jesus reminds us that we should be like the sinner, bowing low and saying, God, have mercy on me. Now, don't misunderstand. I think it is a good and a noble thing that we do in pursuing right thinking and, of course, even right living. But I do think godly righteousness is always clothed in humility and love. And so I approach and invite you to approach with me this activity we're about to undertake together with a desire to be careful that we together might be moved towards humble righteousness rather than prideful rightness. Let's pray. Hmm. Jesus, we do thank you that you are a holy God. And so it's in light of that holiness that we stand humbled before you this morning. We thank you that in our unrighteousness, You saw us, and you loved us, and you were willing to make the most unfair trade in the history of the universe, that you were willing to become sin for us, that we might be clothed in your righteousness. Help us to avoid the sin of pride. Guard us, we pray, and guide us as we open your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage that uh, uh, I am going to be sharing with you this morning that we're going to be re-examining is a a common one, uh, often uh, shared with us at the beginning of a, a worship service or a prayer meeting, and it's this. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Matthew 18, 20. As I said, this is often used as a a reminder or an affirmation or even a consolation to us when we begin a time of worship together. Uh, Particularly if numbers are low, (laughs) the the leader might say, well, at least there's two or three of us and we can be affirmed that Jesus is here too. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he triples our numbers. Uh, 
or something like that. I don't, I don't know. But it's, it is often uh, a reminder of a very good and biblical concept that God is with us when we gather in his name. That is good. It is true. And so there isn't much harm in this misapplication generally, except maybe the subtle and I think often unintentional implication that God is somehow not with us when we are alone or in larger numbers than three. Uh, because this passage does say we're two or three. So the assumption is even more uh, is good. But um, yeah, there's not a lot of harm, I think, in this misapplication because it, it is getting at a biblical truth. It's just the wrong passage to do that with. There are better ones. Psalm 139 reminds us that wherever we go in the whole universe, no matter where we go, the deepest depths or the highest heights, God is there with us. In fact, we can go nowhere where God is not. God is always with us, preceding us, going before us, going with us, going behind us. Maybe more concerning, there might be the odd misapplication of this verse uh, used by Christians who have decided to exclude themselves from a community of believers or, or a church gathering and decide to give up any kind of corporate worship or prayer and say, well, at least, uh, you know, me and my spouse are two and Jesus is there, so, you know, that's enough. And, and that's maybe slightly more harmful, you, more for them uh, and for the body, uh, because we're meant to be together. And so a, a, a better verse that may get at um, what is often used, this verse is used for, that avoids that misapplication would be something like Ephesians 2.19, where uh, Paul writes, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him too, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Here very clearly, Paul is saying that it's in the gathering of his people. There's a unique way in which God dwells in the gathering of his people. And this is often what's meant in the sharing of this verse for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. But this, this verse is more contextually appropriate and guards against some of that misapplication um, I've already mentioned. And so perhaps we could use that one. Another one would be Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus in his final words in Matthew says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the idea that we're trying to get across, that, that this is what we want those verses in Matthew 18 to mean. We want them to mean what these verses in Matthew 28 actually do mean, that when we gather together on mission, Jesus is with us. And in fact, he's not only with us when we're on mission, he is always with us. He's always with us, even to the end of the age. He goes before us, he goes behind us, he walks with us, he indwells us by his spirit. He holds us in his hand and promises never to forsake us. There are many verses that draw us to these truths. So what does this verse that we often use to mean these things uh, actually mean? Well, that's a little bit harder to talk about. 
<laughs> and so let's read the verse in context. If you have your Bible or, or an app on your phone, I invite you to open to Matthew 18. And I'll start reading verse 15. I'll be reading from the NIV. And we'll just go from 15 to 20 for now. <clears throat> Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you that if two or if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So as you can see in, in, in our verse today, is really embedded in this, uh, in this passage of Scripture where Jesus lays down what I'm going to call stepping stones on the pathway to peace within his body, within the church. And there's really, we're going to look at uh, the three stepping stones uh, this morning. We're going to look at the two promises, and then I'm going to end with a few notes of context. So that's where we're going today. Three steps in the pathway of peace, two promises, and a few notes on context. So let's look at the first verse in that um, passage. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Now, the first thing to notice here is uh, brother or sister. These stepping stones are laying out a pattern of confrontation and discipline within the body of Christ, within the church. This isn't a, a, a passage that's meant to inform you how to go about uh, confronting your neighbor or your unbelieving friend or colleague. Secondly, uh, sins. If your brother or sister sins. It doesn't read, if your brother or sister does something that annoys you. <laughs> uh, if your brother or sister is different than you or likes to do things that you don't like. No, it's if your brother or sister sins. This is... <clears throat> You know, this is, is different. Ephesians 4.2 tells us that we're inside the body of Christ to actually bear with one another with love, that we're meant to have patience with one another. We're, we're supposed to even recognize that we are different. Paul talks about the body of Christ and how, you know, we all play different roles in the body. And that difference is actually what makes the body of Christ more reflective of God in creation, that we image him better in our difference than we do in our sameness, that there's something about those differences and our willingness to love one another in spite of those differences, that is actually even a testimony, Jesus says in John 17, to the whole world, that we might love one another despite our difference is exactly what the church is meant to do. And so too often I, I found uh, myself being tempted to deploy these uh, stepping stones to peace as a way of uh, challenging uh, someone 
who's just doing something annoying. <laughs> and I need to be reminded, and I remind you as well, that this, is, this, this process is meant to be deployed when there is blatant sin. <clears throat> blatant sin. What kind of blatant sin here is Jesus referring to? We're all sinners. There's all, all of us have some sin in our life. This whole process, as we go through it, we'll see is, is really um, meant to deal with uh, some pretty blatant and specific sins. And we can see in other places in Scripture where this process is reinforced or, or um, uh, flushed out uh, in different ways, is that uh, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians that the kind of sins are sexually, uh, sexual immoral sins, uh, greed, idolatry, uh, slander, uh, drunkenness, uh, swindling. And so these are the kinds of things... Um, that uh, are, are, are being covered here. So, sin. If your brother or sister sins, go. Go. Take the initiative. But don't go with an army. Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Go privately. Don't go and talk to other people first and build up you know, an, an army of people to confront them. Um, go privately. Now, perhaps a public setting might be wise, but go privately, just the two of you. Go personally. This implies that you have some firsthand knowledge. This passage implies that you have firsthand knowledge of the sin. It's not something you've heard down the grapevine. And it actually is a warning then for those who might be engaged in that kind of uh, discipline, where they observe sin in another person and go and tell everybody down the pew. Um, this is a warning to them. That that's actually, you know, that, that needs to stop. When you hear it, it stops with you. You say, hey, wait, um, you're telling me that uh, so-and-so is engaged in some sinful activity that you've observed this. Have you ever, have you ever sat down and, and, and confronted them about this? And if not, I'd encourage you to stop talking to me and go and talk to them. <clears throat> There's also an element here where we go lovingly, and I'll address that more as we talk about some of the broader context of this passage. But the aim is for restoration. You have won them over. You have won them over. You have brought them back into the community of believers. You've restored relationship. You've reconciled a brother, a sister. This is the purpose. This is the aim. It's not revenge. It's restoration. if they listen to you. There's some instruction here, not just for the person who's observed the sin or had the sin, uh, you know, done to them. There's also some instruction for those of us who may find ourselves being confronted in this kind of process at some point in our life. The instruction is listen. Listen well. Listen. It may not be true. There may be misunderstanding. But first, listen. Listen carefully to those who confront you. If there's truth, repent. Often then, the matter can be closed here. It's done. Although not always, as there may need to be some further or natural consequences. Jesus doesn't necessarily imply here that 
just because there's forgiveness and restoration that there isn't also still some consequence, uh, natural consequence to our sin. For example, you know, you observe, uh, I'm just making this up, uh, an usher stealing from the plate, uh, then you confront them and they repent, they confess. It, it may still be unwise for them to continue being an usher uh, until, you know, they've, um, th that just may be unwise. And so there's many examples I could pull on from there. So forgiveness doesn't always mean lack of consequence, but it does mean that they're treated as one of the family, that they're included and reconciled and restored. Now, I want to say one big caveat on this particular point. I've had the privilege of leading uh, in various organizations and churches over my medium-length life. <laughs> Uh, and much of that has been good. There have been times, unfortunately, where I've seen some of my brothers and sisters uh, and even other leaders in positions of power claim because that this step was skipped that any charge against them should not be validated. In fact, it should be invalidated, that they're absolved from any wrongdoing if this process was somehow skipped, this step in particular. This is a hard step. There are instances, and I think, I, I believe, and generally civic practice agrees that victims of abuse, for instance, whether it's sexual, physical, financial abuse, should not be required to confront their abusers alone before they are offered help in establishing the truth and pursuing peace. This is just generally unwise and perhaps unsafe. And I don't think... It's what Jesus is getting at here. He's not laying out this process of internal, he is laying out a process of internal church discipline. So if you hear my voice today and you know that you are a victim of some form of sinful abuse, would you consider today getting help in confronting that sin, in pursuing peace? Please, if that abuse is happening within the church, don't feel trapped by this first step before seeking help. I fear this passage is far more harmfully misused because of this to oppress or silence victims than the harm caused by misapplying verse, the verse where two or three are gathered. I've seen it. I know it happens. There's a sense of confidence leaders in the church can get false confidence that they, as long as no one confronts them one-on-one, -on -one, they're safe from, from uh, reparation and, and uh, uh, confrontation. So I would say that's a big caveat. There may be times, and in fact, um, uh, Paul and Timothy details times when it is appropriate to skip step one. And it's particular in this place where there's a power differential between those who are being sinned against and those who are living in sin. So that's the big caveat. But for many other things, it is appropriate to go one-on-one. -on -one. And that's the first stepping stone. It's a hard one. It's really hard. And so it's often skipped. <laughs> uh, it's often skipped sometimes for good reasons, sometimes just because it's hard. And so um, 
this is often the step we skip to right away. Um, this is a logical es escalation, and it comes right out of Jewish law. So this is the second verse. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus is directly quoting out of Deuteronomy 19.15, Jewish law that all of his audience would have been very familiar with. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense, Deuteronomy 19.15 says. They may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is a, another clue that this process is specifically referring to some significant or blatant sin in a person's life. The escalation of adding one or two more people to the conversation accomplishes a few things. One, they can help discern whether the accused party really has done wrong. They also witness what is said in the confrontation and give record of it, can give record of it. And at times they often add that positive peer pressure to say, hey, we, we actually love you and we want you to be restored. We want you to come home to give up this sin and to join us in following Jesus. So that's the second step in stone. You escalate to two or three. The third step in stone in this pathway to peace in verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. So I find this, this part is actually very rarely done for a few reasons. Um, one, it, in our day and age especially, it's very easy for the offender in this case to become offended by steps one and two and simply say, I'm out of here. And uh, there's a church on the other street corner that I'll go to. And very often in a world that we live in where there's congregations meeting on nearly every corner of the city, there's lots of opportunity to escape confrontation in one place and simply move to the next. And there's not, there doesn't seem much we can do about that. It's not like we can follow people around and say, hey, um, you know, with, with signs and placards. I'm not sure that's what we're meant to do. And so it gets really tricky when that happens. It gets tricky to know what to do. <clears throat> this, this, the context here often, these churches, these congregations in a, in a smaller city, there's only one. And so if you're not gathering together with that congregation, there's nowhere to go to worship uh, Jesus in, in the way that, that we do. But in our day and age, there's lots of options, and so it's easier to, to just simply move on than to deal with the sin in the context of the congregation. Sometimes, so that's one reason this is rarely done. I think the second reason it's rarely done is Sometimes the situation is just more complicated and there's even maybe legal reasons to protect victims of sin and abuse. You just can't tell everybody. You can't tell everybody everything or even anybody anything sometimes without violating rights and laws and committing further sin. So there's that to weigh. And then sometimes, it, it, well, always, it just really sucks. <laughs> it just really sucks and it's hard to do well very hard. What is Jesus saying here? That if they still refuse to listen even to the confrontation within the larger congregation of the church, treat them as you would a pagan 
or tax collector. Matthew, the author of, of this book, is actually a, you know, a, a tax collector who has been invited by Jesus into his inner circle. So it's, there is a sense in that we begin to treat them not as a believer, but rather as an unbeliever. We welcome them into community, but perhaps uh, we're, you know, they're not offered leadership or roles and responsibilities in the same way a member of the community would be. And so there still needs to be a pursuing of the person in love towards restoration. And sometimes the person is just not willing. And so most often, if they're really not willing, they just exclude themselves. They just say, I'm, this is too hard, this is weird, I'm out. And they leave. It's not the only reason people leave the church, by the way. So I don't want you to be thinking about all the people who have left the church. It's like, okay, what happened to them? Uh, what part of this process did they eject in? That's, don't go there. Don't let your mind go there. Um, <clears throat> that's that's not, not helpful. <laughs> so these are the stepping stones. Privately confront, uh, a, pri- a private conference or two or three confront, and if still not listening, if there's still no repentance, then bring it to the broader church. These three steps are not easy, and so Jesus gives us two promises in connection to these steps, these these stepping stones. He says, first, in verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so Jesus here is, is, um, one, he's repeating a promise that he gave Peter just two chapters earlier, where um, Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, And Jesus says, you're right, Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Jesus gives this promise directly to Peter. He repeats this this promise now to those who are listening. And commentators uh, are pretty divided on who the audience for this particular promise is. So I'll just tell you that, that uh, some believe that the language shifts in this verse such that he's clearly addressing the apostles, uh, the 12 disciples. Some believe that he's addressing the apostles and their, uh, those in line of the apostles, those with the apostolic gift and, and position within the church, uh, leaders. Others believe that he's speaking still to all the members of his, the, the, the broader discipleship uh, disciple gathering around him, and by extension to all believers today. And I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'll let you do the reading if you want to further think on that. But it is one of those things that brings a lot of, um, you know, it, it just uh, depends what church you go to. So in a Baptist church, generally we believe that Jesus is continuing here with this promise to speak to the broader congregation. But there are different opinions through the ages and it's worth knowing that promise two he says again truly i tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for so he's kind of repeating promise one again it will be done for them by my father in heaven so that's just reiterating promise one for where two or three gather in my name there i am with them so very clearly in the context, this two or three is referring to are the two or three witnesses established in the second step of the process or on the pathway to peace. It's these two or three that he's with, and, and he's with them in a sense of, of 
building courage and conviction around the need to, to bring peace and purity within the church. <clears throat> this very difficult process of loving confrontation with the aim of restoration is something that Jesus promises here to lend his presence and his power to. How can we know this? Partly because of the context even around this passage. So we almost have to zoom out again. So we zoomed out once to, from, our, from our verse to, to the passage of this uh, stepping stones on the pathway to peace. We zoom out again and see what stories Matthew has included before and after this hard teaching. Well, there's a few things to note here. First, the story right before this in Matthew 18 is Jesus talking about a good shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And one of those sheep wanders. And he says, what kind of shepherd would you be if you didn't leave the 99 and pursue the one in hope of bringing it back? And isn't there much rejoicing when you return with the lost sheep? This provides context for this whole process. This is the process by which we pursue lost sheep. We do it with love, compassion, intentionality. We want to pursue those, even those who are in sin, even those who hurt us, who malign us, who reject us. We pursue gently, persistently, lovingly. This is the ethos of the whole process. It must be clothed in the compassion of the Good Shepherd. Compassion for the sinner. Compassion for those who have been sinned against. The aim is restoration and peace. So that's context one. We have this parable of the lost sheep. Then there's the pathway to peace. And then context two, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Right after Jesus lays out this three-step process towards peace, Peter asks a question that Peter so often boldly does, which is great for the rest of us because he always verbalizes what we're all thinking. So he's like, okay, so we do this process. How many times am I supposed to forgive my brother, Peter says. Like, I'm thinking seven times would be pretty good, right? Like, if I did seven times, Jesus, I'd be, like, that's phenomenal. If I forgive a sinner who's hurt me, who's hurt my family, who's hurt the people I care about because of their sin, you know, if I forgave them seven times, that would be extraordinary. And Jesus is like, good question, Peter. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to say 70 times 7. In other words, way more, <laughs> infinitely. And then he tells a parable of an, an unforgiving servant. A servant to a master who owed his master a large debt and was forgiven. And then turned around and, and was also owed a small debt from a fellow servant and refused to forgive that servant. And of course, when the master found out that he had forgiven a large debt on this servant, but he had failed to forgive his brother. He was uh, not too happy with him. This is context, too, that somehow we are asked to love like Jesus loves, to forgive like Jesus forgives, to forgive even as we are forgiven. And that is a key to pursuing this pathway to peace. That unless we remember that we too are sinners, 
forgiven extraordinary debts by God in Jesus. It's impossible for us to forgive the other. So we must, as we engage in this pathway to peace, as we step on these stones, constantly be reminding ourselves that we too are sinners in need of forgiveness and indeed have been forgiven. Again, that doesn't mean there's no consequence to sin. But it does mean a reconciliation of relationship. The third bit of context that I think is important for us today is zooming out even further into Matthew. Because Jesus details the same process but from the other way. In Matthew 5, 23, he says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. Go. It's that same word, go. Take the initiative, go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. You see, what Jesus is saying here in the broader context of Matthew is that pursuing this pathway to peace is always my responsibility. It's always my responsibility. Whether I'm the one who becomes aware and convicted of my own sin, whether I'm the one who's uh, been hurt or observed uh, the sin of another, we pursue peace. Whether we're the offender, the observer, or the victim, Jesus invites us to pursue the pathway of peace. I don't believe we're to get so caught up in those stepping stones that we, that we miss the bigger picture, that, that we're aiming for reconciliation, for restoration, for repentance, for humility, for love, for relationship. Does that sound familiar? I think it does because he is the good shepherd. We can... Find courage to walk this path, this pathway to peace, because he did it first on our behalf. We can forgive because he has forgiven us. And so we sit before the cross this morning, and we bow our head, and we remember Jesus died for us, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might have peace now and forever. He rose again that we might have power. Power to love even as he loves. When we pursue peace, reconciling with our brothers and sisters, he promises that there, yes, even there, he is with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the good shepherd, that you left the the self-sufficient, the place of perfection and love, the very throne room of God, and entered into our world broken by sin, that you might pursue those who were lost, tax collectors and pagans. 
and that you did it that, that we might be restored, that we might have peace, peace with creation, peace with our neighbors, peace with our brothers and sisters, peace with you, God. And so we are reminded of the cross this morning, that it's hard, that it's painful, but that it leads to peace. And so we, um, we ask you, Jesus, would you help us in that same way pursue peace with our brothers and sisters? So I'd invite you now just to take a moment in silence to, to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. He is here. He is with us. Perhaps you're aware of some, some sin you have committed against your brother or sister, your husband, your wife, maybe even your children. Something that the Holy Spirit's inviting you to, to lay down even the, the worship you offer here and, and go to confess, to repent, to restore relationship. Or perhaps today you're, you're aware of your brother's or your sister's sin. something that's caused them to wander. And there's opportunity this week to, to go, to pursue them in gentleness and love, inviting them to be restored. In the silence of these next few moments, allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart and move you to what's needed. And give thanks that the Good Shepherd has pursued you. <laughs>